this last week I did a deep dive into studying about cultural Christianity and went to Wikipedia to, f- to find out a definition of that. Um, and, and when you go to Wikipedia, if you were to go to Wikipedia and look up the term cultural Christianity, it would say something along the lines of a non-religious person who holds Christian views. If you were to continue on that Google search, you may find the opposite, that, that one of the definitions of a cultural Christian is, is somebody who doesn't hold to biblical Christianity. That is, is somebody who may identify as a Christian, but whose ultimate authority, ultimate truth, isn't coming from the Bible or isn't coming from the text of Scripture. They don't look at and, and try to hold together this doctrinal purity or standing under the word of God, but absolute truth really is coming from another place. Ultimately, it's coming from from within them, but a lot of times that's motivated by the thing that's keeping them out of or keeping them from being a biblical Christian is the culture around them. That they don't want to hold on to a view that the culture around them may think is strange or may think is odd or it might be out of step with the current cultural moment. Christianity becomes maybe a club or a voting block. Certainly rejects any idea of the supernatural. We're serving a God who is sovereign. He is mighty. He is personal. And this sometimes affects the church, doesn't it? I have a good friend who has told me this story on a couple of occasions, but he attended a church in which there was a lady who had gotten the horrific news that she was eaten up with cancer and had cysts and her body had cancer in it. Her body was being ravaged by cancer. And so she called the elders and the pastor to come to her church, to come to her home and to pray for. And the elders and the pastor really didn't know what to do because they had never done this before. But they came and they prayed for her. And then the next day, as she went for her final scan before the surgery, a miracle had taken place and there was no cancer in her body. But the pastors and the elders didn't believe it. They gave other reasons like, you know, maybe the doctor was mistaken or maybe the scans were wrong the first time. Why even call yourself a Christian? What are we doing? If we're honest, if we're honest, I think at various times we all struggle with these type of things. I think at times that we struggle with the idea of of who God is and His power and His might and His truth. As we look at this text this morning, we see a group of people who are religious. They are Jewish leaders. But yet, 
but yet their belief is so small, if not non-existent. It's important this morning that we look at these Sadducees that in many ways would be this type of cultural, an extreme form of a cultural Christian. It's important as we look at this text this morning, if we're going to truly understand what's going on in this text and what Jesus is saying, we have to understand who these Sadducees were. We can't just gloss over. If we do, really this text is kind of weird. The language is kind of weird. Where Jesus goes to answer their question is really odd. Unless we begin to understand who these men were and what they believed. Now, we know, if you've been tracking along with us in the book of Mark, that these are the last days before Jesus is going to be crucified. And these waves of people have come to him uh, with hostile intentions, trying to discredit him and trying to overcome his ministry. And here, what we see in our text is it's the Sadducees' turn. And the Sadducees are coming to Jesus, and they're wanting to discredit him. They're, they're really wanting him to make. They're really wanting to make him look silly. And so, so there are a few things I want you to know about this group. Um, in a really odd way. We often lump Sadducees and Pharisees together. And really, they were polar opposites in what they believed. The only thing that lumped them together was their hatred for Jesus and the message that he was preaching. So when you see them in scriptures, they're really not a group that they don't believe the same things. They're not on the same page really when it comes to anything except, except the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, these men were Jewish, really, in name only. They weren't very religious. In many ways, we could look at them as maybe the, the liberals of today who hold to some form of Christianity but really deny its power or deny its implications in their life. They were actually a very small group compared to some of the other groups that were around at the time. But these guys were the elite of the elite. They would have been the guys teaching in the seminaries, teaching in the institutions. Culturally, they had a very high status. And they loved their status. They were elites. In fact, in fact, although they were a very, very small group, they were the group that was in charge with running the temple. This is what they were associated with. This was their thing. And when the temple was, in, was destroyed in 70 AD, there were no more Sadducees. There was no more purpose that they held. They were very wealthy. They were very powerful. And they were very cozy with Rome. As you could understand, where some of the other religious groups looked at Rome's occupation and, and, and it angered them, the, the Sadducees just made hay while they could. If Rome was in power, they were going to cozy up to them. As long as they could maintain their status, their position. And they held some really odd beliefs. Uh, you know, when I was young, one of the things that I learned, and I don't know if you learned this in uh, vacation Bible school or Sunday school, but when you heard the word Sadducee, you're supposed to say, it's sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So that's how I always remembered 
that. So they, they, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in eternal life. They did not believe in life after death. They were very nihilistic in the way that they viewed the world. So you lived and you died and that was it. They didn't believe in the supernatural. We learn in the book of Acts that they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in anything like that. And, and one way to maybe explain this group is that they were like an extreme, extreme uh, form of uh, uh, a group that would say that God is not in control, that God has no power, God doesn't interact in the world, that everything that happens is a result purely of, of man and woman and their decisions and their choices in the world. One way to look at it would be like an extreme Armenianism, if you understand those terms. And, and another odd belief that they had is that they only believed in the first five books of our first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They, they, those are the only books that they believed in. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the wisdom literature. They didn't believe in the other writings of the Old Testament, but they believed in the Torah, and they were rigidly dogmatic about the Torah. Oftentimes it was described that if, there was, if somebody you know, committed an offense that was against one of the laws in the Old Testament, that they would have been the first one to pick up the stone to start the stoning. So a really odd um, belief system. And when you think about it, and when you begin to understand who these men were, you understand why they didn't jive with Jesus. I mean, Jesus came and He was quoting the Old Testament, the prophets, all the time. In fact, Jesus was claiming authority when he was sitting and teaching. He would oftentimes quote a prophet and say, you know, now let me tell you about myself. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah wouldn't have jived very well with these Sadducees. Because if Rome went, or if there was a disruption, they would lose out on a really good thing. Jesus... As he came about, he was a miracle worker. He was supernatural in and of himself. He was healing people from diseases. He was casting out demons. He was raising the dead. In fact, think about this. According to the book of John, we have Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And we have this real interesting interaction to where, you know, they're wanting, then the religious leaders are wanting to kill Lazarus. Think about how this would have flown all over these Sadducees. That this man Lazarus, who was literally raised from the dead, was with Jesus. This was completely opposed to anything that they believed in. And Jesus probably did not help his relationship with the Sadducees when he went into their temple... And started turning over money tables. Easy to see. Easy to see how they didn't get along. And so when we come to this interaction. And when, we, when the Sadducees come with this question. They're not just coming to discuss theology. 
They're not inviting Jesus to have a cup of coffee and say, oh, okay, hey, let's talk about this marriage thing in heaven. There is a bigger point. And the point of our text this morning is bigger than what we may get caught up in when we read this text. I, I just want to give you a warning. We are going to dip our toe in, in what it means that there's no marriage in heaven. We are going to dip our toe into that. But this text is not about marriage in heaven. This text is about power. It's about authority. It's about who God is. So when these men come along and they ask this question, the question they have is just a tool to try to get at Jesus, to try to make him look silly, to try to make him look ridiculous. And so let's look at verse 18. It says, some Sadducees, and notice what Mark inserts here, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. And let's look at their question and just just hang on with me here. This this question from the Sadducees comes from the Old Testament, comes from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, in which Moses is laying out, you know, if some families are living together and there's a wife, a man has a wife and he doesn't have any children and he dies, that it's the brother's responsibility to step up and to marry her and take her in. And if we were to go to the book of Deuteronomy, it even says that if a brother doesn't do this, if he forsakes this responsibility, I think it says that you take your sandal off and shake it at him, which I guess is not a very good thing. I think we should reinstitute some of those things. So when we get mad at people, we're just taking our shoes off and shaking them at them. So let's look in 19 through 23. The Sadducees say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also in the resurrection. When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And it's interesting. It's interesting. These Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, you can almost hear you can almost hear their their sarcasm Ah, in the resurrection. Jesus. Whose wife will she be? Now, what's interesting is it's kind of a good question, right? If we redid this in a way and we said, all right, look, this is not true of my family, but let's say it was true of my family. Let's say that my grandmother uh, married a man and in World War, when she was young, my grandfather went off to World War, I guess he wouldn't be my grandfather, just hang with me here. It gets confusing. Let's say she married a man who, was, who went off and died in World War II. Heartbroken. Deeply in love with this man. The love of her life. And then after she was mourning the loss of that man, another man comes along and they were married for 40 wonderful years. That God brought along this other man in her life and they had this wonderful, fantastic relationship. 
And then later in life, he got cancer and he passed away. And she thought, you know, I'm just going to ride this out uh, till eternity. And lo and behold, here comes along another man and they marry. And they just have a fantastic relationship that everybody in the church just thinks is so sweet and wonderful and fantastic. And then she dies. Whose husband? Whose wife? What does this look like? This is confusing. This is a good question. And I want to give you the quick answer. Which may shake some of you. And you may say, hey, happy Valentine's Day, Lewis. Verse 25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That Jesus is saying in heaven there is no marriage. And notice Jesus meets sarcasm with sarcasm. They don't believe in angels. And so Jesus in saying, hey, in heaven, we'll be like angels. Not in all respects, just in the respect of that angels are not married and man and woman will not be married in heaven either. Now, as tempting as it is to keep going, I know that this is one of those situations where I can't just keep going because some of you have questions and um, maybe even concerns. And so let me just flush this out just a little bit. This is the real story of my grandmother and grandfather. They were married for over 60 years and had a wonderful, fantastic relationship. Uh, As my grandfather uh, got dementia, we moved him to Chattanooga and they were in church with us. And so... At Crossroads, everybody knew my grandmother, Boppy, is what we called her. Uh, My grandfather passed away uh, before we moved back into town. But everybody just loved my grandmother. And when my grandmother got sick uh, and passed away, um, a lot of people were talking about, oh, it is so wonderful. My grandmother would talk about seeing my grandfather again in heaven. And to make a point that I believe in full-heartedly, and I want you to hear this because this is what I believe. One of the things, I think I said it at her funeral. If not, I said it on the Sunday after her funeral. That here's what I believe potentially happened. As soon as my grandmother took her last breath and was in heaven. Maybe one of the first people she saw was my grandfather. But he was kind of like the the, the coach on third base. Was kind of like waving her around saying, he's over there. Jesus is over there. Because in that moment, in that moment, the reality, the reality of being in the presence of Jesus sets in and she's no longer as concerned about seeing my grandfather. She's concerned with seeing Jesus. The first love. In fact, in heaven, it's talked about that we are at the feast of the bridegroom, that there is this new marriage, the church is the bride finally united again forever in eternity with Him. And and there's so much when we talk about heaven that we can't understand. We can't understand. There is... I don't even know when we're in heaven, when we think back to our time on earth. Now we talk about things, and I'm guilty of talking about... uh, You've heard me say it, like chocolate cake and cheeseburgers of taste of heaven... 
And I think we're going to, it's going to be so far beyond that that we're going to say, man, we were all wrong. We, you know, man, if it was taste, it was just small, slight little slivers that heaven and being in his presence is going to be far better and greater than anything we ever know. I think it's so much joy, so much pleasure, so much happiness that our current physical bodies couldn't even handle it. The way I like to think about heaven is that if we went in these bodies, they would just explode. It's how great heaven would be. So, you may ask, well, Lewis, what about your relationship with Casey? Do you think you'll know her in heaven? And I want to say yes, and I know there's some follow-up questions, and I will answer those real quickly and then ask you to do something impossible. I'll answer it real quickly and said this, say this. I think that there are aspects of the relationship with Casey I, the Bible is silent on that I have no idea how to answer some of those questions about the nature of the relationship. The only thing that I do know is the relationship will be better. Better because there won't be my sin in the way of the relationship. No sin. No selfishness. No greed. Relationships are better. And here's the other key. If this disappoints you that there's not marriage in heaven, here's the greatest news of all. What we know about the Bible is that whatever those relationships are, in heaven, we're not missing out on anything. There's no sadness. There's no depression. And so whatever that relationship is, I do think it's better, but I also think that we don't... Oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> Because here, we think about no marriage. Oh man, some of you may be saying, oh yeah, and we need to talk afterwards if that's your opinion. But on the other end, we're saying, oh man, I, I just think that heaven is so great that we will not look at it as missing out. Whatever, whatever that relationship looks at. Now, here's the impossible thing. We've got to get back to our text. Stop thinking about marriage in heaven for a moment. And let's get back to our text. Let's get back to the main point. Jesus' main point is not that there isn't marriage in heaven. And notice, he goes right at these men in verse 26. He says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again. They ask him this silly question about marriage, and then Jesus says, there's no marriage in heaven, but I know what you're really after, and I'm coming right after it. I will answer you on this. Regarding the fact of the resurrection, and Jesus is defending this, and if you know the Old Testament, let me ask you the question. I'm not asking the question for a response. Think in your head, quit, think in your head. Where in the Old Testament would you go if you were going to defend the resurrection? Some of you might think of Daniel chapter 12, where it is said in Daniel chapter 12 that, um, that this, that, that, Many will be asleep and they will awake and they will go into eternal life. Or maybe the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it said that the dead will live and the bodies will rise. In the book of Psalms, there is reference after reference after reference of being with God forever in eternity. That's not where Jesus goes. Jesus could have gone to any of those places and Jesus goes to a really weird text. He goes to Exodus chapter 3. And he's talking about Moses and the burning bush. None of us would have gone there. Why does Jesus do that? 
Remember, these men don't believe in all those other books. So what Jesus says is, I'll come on your turf. I'll come on your turf because your turf, this is God's inspired word. I wrote that and let me tell you something. So he quotes Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 and let's look at it in verse 26. Have you not, listen to how he sets this up. These are experts in the Torah. Have you not read the book of Moses? I also think it's interesting that not only does he say, hey, have you not read your own books? Do you not know in your own book in the book of Moses? But he also says, uh, when God was speaking in the burning bush, you who believe there's no supernatural, you who believe that God isn't interacting in the world, you who believe that God doesn't care or isn't active in the affairs of men, remember in the book of Moses, have you not read it? We're in the burning bush. And he says this, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the point, the point is that he did not say, God did not say in the burning bush, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are alive. I'm not the God of dead corpses. They are alive and they are with me. Now the plain problem, the plain problem, and I believe this is where we can fall into error as well, the plain problem that Jesus is pointing out, he states in verse 24, is not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? That Jesus is saying to these men, the reason you are in error, the reason that you have been deceived is because you don't understand the Scripture. And you don't understand the power of God. He repeats this in verse 27. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you are greatly Mistaken. You see, when we begin to play around with Scripture, and we begin to play around with the authority and power of God to fit our own lifestyle, we get into a dangerous, dangerous place. And we begin to live a life where we are the sinner. And we want to make much of ourselves. And we want to look good in society and those around us. And we don't live the life that God has called us to, which is the most joyful, adventurous, wonderful lives that we could be called to. The kind of life that over and over again in the New Testament we are told to look towards the finish and to run this race. A couple of months ago, as we were looking in the book of 1 Peter, we got this idea 
where we are to think about the joys and the glories of heaven and the reward that we get there and that we are to live in this world in such a way, in such a way that throughout the ages, Christians, Christians have set the world on fire, displaying the truth of the gospel and who Christ is. But many of us are living the life of a cultural Christian. Yeah, we may identify with Christians by name or by group or that we loosely follow certain things in the Bible. But at the end of the day, we're more concerned about what the world thinks about us. Many of us have not grown too far behind, too far beyond those middle school days. You know those middle school days? Do you have one in your house where the concern is of, you know, what I look like, what my friends may say, what are my friends going to think of me, what group do I fit in? And we like to kind of look at kids and say, oh, that's so juvenile. <laughs> Adults, we do this as well. Where we're living this way versus living in such a way Living in such a way where we understand the scriptures and we realize the power of God. What if, what if we truly lived in such a way where we believed that this word is true and that we believed that God was active, that he is the God of the living and that he is interacting and he is personal we would be set ablaze by the reality that He sent His Son to die on a cross so that we could be reconciled to Him and that Jesus Christ is the only way. And this would become our marching orders to proclaim Jesus Christ until He comes again because it really is the only thing that matters. I think we would believe that the battles we face are not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And Many Christians run from this one. We run from this one because we don't want the world to think we're weird. Because we believe that not only is God interacting in this world, but there is an enemy that's also interacting in this world. I think we would believe and carry with us that man's greatest need is revival. That our church's greatest need is revival. That God is working in this world around us. And that the resurrection is real. And that we will one day be with Him. And this gives us the courage to live in this life. I don't know who this quote is from. But there's this quote that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I hope you know that that's baloney. That in reality, when you have a clear view of heaven and who God is and what what the end of our life will be like. It sets us free. It frees us from all the 
craziness and the turmoil and the pressures of this world to live a life for him. And that's what God is calling us to. This morning. How would it change your life if you believe these things? Some of you are still hung up on the marriage thing. Right? I mean, think about it. Some of you are still hung up on the marriage thing. And what Jesus is saying is, it's better. It's better. The criticism that I'm willing to take as a pastor, and this happens at times, every now and then, right? Your pastor gets criticized. One of the criticisms I'm willing to take is when I'm sitting down with somebody and they're in a really hard, difficult situation and I say that I believe that God can do anything in your life. I believe that God can do anything in your marriage. And they look at me and say, you don't know my husband, you don't know my wife. And I say, I don't need to know your husband, I don't need to know your wife because I know the God who created them and who moves and is all powerful. God can do anything. criticism that I often find myself falling into is believing the same thing that they're telling me. Man, that seems impossible. With God, all things are possible. And my prayer for us at Signal Mountain Bible Church is that we would be a people, we would be a people who are constantly pushing in to the reality of who God is and our vision of His greatness and His goodness and His power and the reality that He is at work in and among us is constantly, constantly flooding us so that we become a people who imperfectly, imperfectly strive to walk that out. Hear the good news in these verses again. The good news is that this does not have to be said of us. In verse 24, it doesn't have to be said of us that we don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. This is not to say that that next week I expect you to understand everything about eschatology in the book of Revelation. That's not what this is saying. This is really pointing out the reality The basics of the scripture of who God is and who we are. And that God has the good news is, is that God has revealed himself to us so that we can know the scriptures and we can know his power. And the greatest news of all is that God is the God of the living. And our response is to humbly bow before him. Acknowledging his rule, acknowledging his reign, and going forward to be his ambassadors in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are the God of the living. Your word is true. God, convict us. Convict us. Convict us of where we fail, convict us of where we are 
more concerned about our neighbors or our co-workers or our schoolmates. God, help us to find our joy and pleasure in the reality of who you are and the reality of the truth of your word. Help us to see this world how we're supposed to see it. And not how culture is trying to dictate we see it. God, I thank you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.